And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you uh, for all that have gathered here. Lord, we thank you for the ministries that you're working in and through us, Lord. We pray for spiritual growth, Lord, among our young adults, Lord, and our, our youth. That they will set firm the foundation that will keep them steady throughout all their years. Lord, that they would walk with you continually. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we pray, Lord, that we would hear and understand, receive, and react, Lord, to what we hear today. We pray for Pastor Greg as he has prepared this message, Lord, that the Spirit would speak through him this morning. We ask that you bless this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. Y'all ready to get into this last letter to the seventh church? I uh, I know as I was preparing for it, uh, as in all of these letters, uh, it has become uh, one of the letters that I'm looking at and, and realizing that what we are in trying days. Uh, as a nation, we're in trying days as a church. We're in days right now where uh, the church really needs to uh, be doing some real examination of where we stand and where we're at. And uh, we're gonna see uh, that, I believe, this morning. We're gonna be looking at the church at Laodicea. And it's uh, in the text that uh, Kyle just read. Uh, some have given, and my Bible gives the uh, heading for this church, the lukewarm church. 
There are others that have given a title to this church, the Last Days Church. And I like another one that I, I found. I don't know uh, if I'm going to use this one, but it's the Disgusting Church. That's pretty descriptive, isn't it? The Disgusting Church. We already looked at the book of Ephesians, or excuse me, the church at Ephesus. And we saw a church that had all of the good works, yet they had left their first love. We looked at the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church, and Jesus wanted to encourage them to be faithful unto death. The church at Pergamos, the church that was compromising God's truth. The church at Thyatira, the church that was corrupt within, and they were holding to and teaching false doctrine. Jesus says, I gave them time to repent, but they would not repent. And then we have the church at Sardis, the dead church, a church that was reforming doctrinally, but it was lacking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week, the church at Philadelphia, the faithful church, the church that God says, I've given you an open door which no man can shut. Because you have been faithful in the little things, I'll even give you more. And as I shared last week, that would be the church that I would want to be a part of. That would be the kind of Christian that I would want to be. We come, though, to the church at Laodicea this morning. The seventh church that Jesus wrote a letter to. The lukewarm church that we're going to learn that was rich and it had need of nothing. On our screen we have that timeline that I've been showing you. That last church, Laodicea from 1900 A.D., to the rapture of the church. Now the rapture of the church has not happened yet. But I believe the rapture is coming. And we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know when that time is going to take place. But I believe everything has already been fulfilled that needs to happen. The rapture could happen at any moment. We're in these days that we would call the last days. And if the church at Laodicea is the last day's church, then we really need to sit up and take notice of this church this morning. Why did Jesus write seven letters to seven churches? Why not 14 churches? Because the number seven actually speaks of perfection and it speaks of completeness in the Bible. Whenever you see the, the number seven, which is used quite often, and it's almost that Jesus is saying in these seven churches that span all of church history, everything that I would want to say to the church I have said in these seven letters, all of the warnings that I would want to give to the churches I have said in these seven letters. And so let's look at our Bibles at verse 14 of chapter 3. 
This is Jesus writing this letter. He says, to the angel or to the pastor of the church of the Laodiceans write. Now, some have thought that this pastor was Archippus, who is spoken of by Paul in the book of Colossians in chapter 4, verse 16. And then also Paul makes reference uh, of this in the book of Philemon in chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says he was a fellow soldier. And so Archippus, possibly the pastor of the church there in Laodicea. This name of this city, Laodicea, or Laodicea in the Greek, is a compound word which could be broken down this way. You have the word, first part of it, that is laos, which means people, the people. And then you have the second half of the name dyke, which means to judge or to rule. And so we have this name Laodicea, and we can say that the name actually means the rule of the people. And I believe that that's a fitting name for this city. I have a, just a couple of slides that I want to show you uh, this morning of some of the archaeology there in uh, Laodicea, the main street there in Laodicea. That's what you would see today if you were to go to that city and walk. There's the remains of the main street. You can go to the next slide. That's uh, one of the, again, like many of these large cities had, a theater that was there in Laodicea. And so there are other remains and other things that you could see in that city. But it just brings a little bit. This was a thriving city in the day. The city of Laodicea. The background for this city was that again it was a chief Roman city. It was in the area or the region that is referred to as Pergia. If you look at your ancient maps in your Bible, you would see this area of Pergia. It was in the Lucas River Valley region that this city uh, was established in. The city's actual full name was referred to as Laodicea on the Lycus. The Lycus was a river that ran through. It was a wealthy city. It had a large Jewish population in the day. It had various temples like the other cities, pagan temples that were throughout the city. And in this particular city, it also had the god to Eclipius, which was the same God that we read about in the church at Pergamos. And the people there, they worshipped this God of Eclipius, which was the God of medicine. And the people in that day were, uh, and the church had to contend with the various gods and the pagan gods in their city. We know from Paul's letter to the Colossians, that he had concern in that letter to the church of Laodicea. He wrote in Colossians 2.1, he says, For I want you to know that I have a great conflict for you, he's speaking about the believers in Colossae, and for those in Laodicea. You see, Laodicea was about 45 miles southeast 
of the last church that we read about, Philadelphia. All of these churches were in a fairly short distance to each other. Remember, these were circular letters that made their way, made their route to these seven churches. We have a, another, um, you can see there the grouping of, uh, of Laodicea and the, the two cities around it. Uh, you go to the next slide too, that shows, well, maybe try the next one, right there. Uh, you can see Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. That was the location, and that's what Paul is writing here to, not only to Colossae, but also to Laodicea. These three cities that are really called the triad of Asia Minor started making me think about the triad in which we live. Uh, we might say that these three cities are Winston-Salem, High Point, and Greensboro, the triad of North Carolina. Here are these three cities there of Laodicea and Heropolis and Colossae. These were three cities very close to one another. They, Paul, in his relationship with these three cities, he saw them as being very important cities. Paul lists them actually in Colossians also in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, For I bear him witness that Epaphras has a great zeal for you, laboring fervently in prayer for you in Colossae, and those who are in Laodicea, and those in Heropolis. And so Paul had a concern for all three of these cities that were in that area. This city of Laodicea, and uh, you can go back to the one slide of, uh, you, you can see some of the things uh, that are symbolic really of this city. Eclipius and the medical symbol up there. You can see uh, some of the, uh, a little container of ISAV. You can see the gold coins uh, that are there and representative of really what was this in this city and what this city really was like. The city was a wealthy city in the day, very wealthy. It was very independent also. It was a, a commercial city. Uh, the Laodicean wall, they had this black wall that, uh, that they used and, and even dyed it into a real deep purple. And so the people of Laodicea were probably some of the finest dressed people in the area. There was a garment industry within this city. What Jesus says of this city, though, is what we see in verse 18 of our text. Look what he says. I counsel you to buy from me, that me is God, to buy from me gold refined in fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. We live in the triad. 
It's interesting that within the triad here in North Carolina, did you know that Charlotte is a banking capital in the United States? Next to New York, it was ranked actually, and I think still might be, ranked the number two banking city in the United States for all the major banks that have their offices there, the trading and the amount of money that goes through the city of Charlotte. Did you know that Winston-Salem was known for its textiles and the things that came out of this city? That in Winston-Salem, it's actually, I believe, the number, uh, number two employer in Winston-Salem has to do with medical. We have Baptist Hospital, we have Navant, we have medical everywhere in this city. This is in our day. You see, even culture, city culture, and the place that you live, it affects the church. It affects, and it, sometimes these things can creep into the church. We live in the United States of America that has all of its problems. With all the things that have been given to us, all the ways in which we've been blessed. By the way, 4th of July. We still are blessed people to be living in this nation, even though people are losing a lot of heart in this nation. Jesus again says, I counsel you. I give you counsel to buy from me gold. Refined in the fire that you may be rich. You see, that's God's counsel to us. Don't put your confidence in riches. Put your confidence in me. In white garments. As opposite of that black wool that was being made into garments there in Laodicea. That you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. White garments that are waiting for you and I that know Jesus Christ. History tells us that the wealth that was in Laodicea, the wealth that was there, they were actually minting their own coins long before many of the other Roman cities because of the wealth that was in that city. Laodicea, like I shared about uh, some of the other uh, cities there in, in Asia Minor, they all experienced at times major earthquakes. And in 60 AD, there was a major earthquake that literally destroyed, almost wiped out the city of Laodicea. But the people were so rich and so independent in the day that they refused help from the Roman government and they said, we will rebuild our city ourselves. We don't need your help. We'll do it on our own. And they did. Jesus gave counsel to this church in verse 17. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing because you say, because of what's in your heart, because of what drives you, you're able to say, I have need of nothing. I'm all right. I'm doing good. 
Isn't pride an ugly thing? Anyone want to say amen to that? Amen. It's an ugly thing. When pride gets a hold of our hearts, when self-sufficiency gets a hold of us, we've made ourselves who we are. We have what we have because of our hard work, because of all the work that I've put in. But there was another aspect of the Laodiceans' pride that was in this city. As I already said, it was a noted medical center. It, was, uh, it was, had the famous school in this city that was referred to as the Temple of the Carrion Godman. This school was known throughout the region for two main products, two things that they produced in this city of Laodicea. One was that ointment. The ointment that was for the ears. And another one was an ointment that they made for the eyes. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, he brings out these things. I mean, these are the two products that are being made and world known to go for the ears and for the eyes. And Jesus says in verse 18, he says, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may be able to see. We often get so consumed with the physical things in life, the tangible things in life, that we actually miss out on the spiritual things that, that are really the most important things. Jesus says, anoint your eyes. Anoint them with eye salve of the Holy Spirit that you might be able to see something spiritual. That you wouldn't be bogged down with the physical and just the tangible things of life. You see, one of the greatest enemies of our flesh is pride. And pride basically says this, if you didn't already know it, I don't need any help. And pride says, I'm all right when you're really not. And pride in, in its most depraved state might say, I don't even have a need for God. You might need him, but I don't need him. It's pride. You see, pride is often more concerned about what the outside looks like than it is about what's on the inside. But that's opposite with God. God is always most concerned what's on the inside of you, your heart condition, than he is how it is on the outside. What people think more than what God thinks is because they look at the outward. God looks at the inward. In Proverbs 16, 18 we read, pride goes before destruction. 
and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Humble me, Lord. Keep me in a humble state. My flesh truly wants to rise up in pride. But God, I want to be humble. You're the humble servant that came into this world to save me. And should I be above that? Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then John in 1 John 2.15, he says to us, he warns us as Christians, he says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and then he says, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The pride of life, our enemy, our arch enemy. In verse 14, Jesus reveals himself to the church. If you're going to write a letter to somebody and you don't write who it's coming from, and then you're writing a letter of correction and rebuke, but it doesn't say who the letter's from, what would you do with it? You'd throw it away. You wouldn't receive it. If you got a letter from somebody that wrote who they were, or they wrote their credentials as to why they're saying what they're saying, and you began to read that letter, you might take note of that. In all of these letters, Jesus, in this revelation of himself, reveals himself to the churches. Look what he says in verse 14. These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The first thing he says is that I am the Amen. And whenever, and I've shared this a little bit about this word amen, when amen is used in the beginning of a sentence in the Bible, it's for the purpose of emphasizing what is about to be said. I want you to think of the remainder of this letter and Jesus starting this letter by saying, I am the amen. The word amen is often translated in our Bibles also, verily, verily, or truly, truly, we see it. Jesus often uses those words to introduce some new revelation that he's about to reveal. Truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you. When the word amen is said by God, it says, it is, and it shall be so. When the word amen is used by men, like you and I, 
it says, so let it be. Or it is done. Amen? Amen. So let it be. I shared last week out of 2 Corinthians 1.20. I've actually shared it two or three times. You got it memorized yet? Okay. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Good one to memorize. Kyle's played that worship song a few times and it just rings and rattles around in my head and I like it. You ever get one stuck in your head? It's a good one to get stuck in your head. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. The promises of God are a yes and an amen. Did you know that the last word in the Bible is the word amen? The very last word. Revelation 22-21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So let it be. So all these things will come to pass. The last word of the Bible. Jesus also calls himself the faithful and the true witness. These are attributes that speak of his sincerity and his truth. You see, Jesus is the faithful and the true witness. And did you know that the word witness there, it's actually in the Greek, it's the word martyr. And Jesus says, I am the faithful and I am the true martyr. You see, a martyr is somebody that is willing to die for truth. And Jesus did that. Jesus is giving the reasons for this church at Laodicea to listen to the words that he is about to say to them. The faithful and the true witness is writing to you. And what a contrast to the church at Laodicea who is neither faithful nor true in their practice. Nothing good was said about this church. Jesus says also that I am the beginning of the creation of God. And he's not saying that he was a created being like the Jehovah's Witnesses want to teach. Jesus existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the triune God from the beginning. They had always been. But what it's saying here is that Jesus is the originator of God's creation. He's the active cause for God's creation. He's the origin of all creation. If somebody was addressing a letter to me like that, that's what I would say, sit up and take notice. The creator of the heavens and the earth. He created it all. We know that from first or from John 1, verse 1. John makes it very clear. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, speaking about Jesus Christ. 
He was in the beginning with God. And then it says this, And all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, the originator, the cause, the beginning of all creation, is the one who is writing this letter to the church at Laodicea. And now Jesus, who sees clearly all that is good and all that is bad, everything that is indifferent in the church, he says, I see your spiritual condition. I can see it. I can see your heart. I know the spiritual condition in which you are. He knew that of every church, didn't he? All seven of those churches. He says, I know your works. I know what's going on inside of you. And to this church at Laodicea, that is referred to as the lukewarm church, the church that was indifferent, God says, I see that. I see that in you. Even your culture and your city that has come in is beginning to creep into the church. It's affecting you. To be a Christian that is without interest. Oh, you come to church. But without interest. Without real concern. Lacking feeling inside. Uninterested. Apathetic. Just being neutral. You see, that's a dangerous place to be. To be a Christian and come to church and to be that way in heart and mind. We're just here because that's what we do. It's what Christians do. They go to church. But there's nothing beyond that. Verse 15, I know your works. I know that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, because you're indifferent, and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus, the master teacher, we might say, he had a way of taking common things of the day and turning those common everyday things into something spiritual that they could grab hold of. I've got a slide up here of some hot springs. Heropolis. The hot springs of Heropolis. A city where Laodicea needed to get their water from. And it was pretty amazing because they would build these aqueducts that would take water from Heropolis, these hot springs, 
and they would channel it down to Laodicea and the city would receive hot water. But then they needed also some cold water. And so they would get that from the mountain region that was there in Colossae and the cold water would be ran through aqueducts down to the city of Laodicea. They were fully dependent upon getting their water from outside sources. But as we know how water works, if you run hot water from a spring that at the head of that spring it's hot, and by the time it travels that distance through those aqueducts, by the time it reached Laodicea, what do you think it would be? Lukewarm. Lukewarm. And then you have the cold water that would be coming in from Colossae. Jesus says, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus, he wanted them to be cold or hot. How many of you like lukewarm coffee? Raise your hand. Yeah, there's one. I won't hold it against you. Okay, we've got a couple. couple people, lukewarm. Okay. I won't judge you for it. I have a mug that was given to me a couple years ago for Christmas. It actually Bluetooths to my phone. I can set, and I do have it set at 145. It keeps my coffee hot at 145 from the first drip to the last. Isn't that wonderful? I don't drink lukewarm coffee. It's unscriptural. No. But, good example, isn't it? This metaphor that Jesus uses here, I could wish that you were cold or hot was speaking about their spiritual condition. You see, hot means spiritually hot. Zealous for the things of God. Zealous for works. And cold means spiritually cold. Without enthusiasm. And no witness. But lukewarm. It's indifferent. It's neutral. It's apathetic. It's disinterested. You might say it's half-hearted. Giving just part of our heart to God. But not all of it. And many of the Christians there in Laodicea, Jesus was warning them, you're becoming spiritually lukewarm. I'd rather have you be hot or cold. But not lukewarm. How many of you started out hot? You gave your life to Christ. You were zealous for the things of God. And in time you've cooled off. 
And what does it look like for someone to really start cooling off? And what are some of the things that could cause that within the church? I think one of them that we battle against here in America is materialism can have its way in that. Laodicea was very wealthy, very rich, well off. Ease and comfort of living. It's America, isn't it? If you've ever been to any other country, that's America. Sin and compromise in our life. That'll cool you off quickly. A lack of time spent in the word of God and in prayer and in fellowship with other believers. That'll do it. And having no outlet, no giving out, and being self-consumed will do that. Jesus says to the church, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus, in essence, is saying your self-sufficiency, your pride, your witness, your hypocrisy, it sickens me. That's harsh. That's right to the point. It sickens me. They had become lukewarm. And some have even pondered the thought as to why Jesus would rather have them be cold or hot, but not lukewarm. And I believe that it's because God hates more than a cold faith. It's a hypocritical, indifferent, and a lukewarm faith. God hates that. Jesus says, I'll vomit you, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And by the way, I don't have any picture for that. I don't think you'd want to see it. But have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen it? I had three daughters. I remember one time they all got stomach flu at the same time. Imagine what a house looks like. Running through the hallways. It's ugly. Jesus says, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Some translations read, I'll spit you out. But I like the word vomit because it's, it's actually a lot more, it's, it's more descriptive, isn't it? Jesus is saying here, I intend to vomit you out of my mouth. And because of your hypocrisy, he says, because you say I am rich, because you say you have become wealthy and have need of nothing, which is pride, but you do not know that you are wretched, that you are miserable, poor, blind, and naked but you don't know but you don't even see it you see they had the riches and the success and by the way that in itself is not wrong but it was corrupting their thinking 
and their dependence upon God was dwindling. That's a problem. You see, pride and self-sufficiency in time, if it's allowed in our hearts, it'll creep in. And Jesus says, but what you don't see is you're poor, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're blind, you're naked. That's what I see. You see, they had the salve for healing the eyes, but Jesus says, you're blind. You might have that in your city. It might be renowned for your city, but you're blind. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 62.10, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. You see, it's a hard issue. To be wretched means that you're anxious and distressed. And doesn't wealth and material, doesn't that do that to us a lot? I mean, the more you have, the more you can stress, and you know, more you can get all worked up, more things that break. You're wretched. And you're miserable. And, and the word miserable actually means to be pitied. And how do you think that sounded in the ears of those that were hearing this letter read? Those that were lukewarm in their pride and their self-sufficiency. That you're to be pitied. And I don't think that it went over very well probably in a lot of their hearts. And you're blind. Spiritually blind. Spiritual condition. And you're naked. And here's a city that was known for their, their clothing. They were known for that industry. And he says, you're naked. You see, what we see, and even within the church, when we look at a church, we look at how God is blessing it on the outside quite often. But what is going on internally in the hearts of the people? What's coming out in fruit? Look what he says in verse 18. Jesus gives counsel. I counsel or I advise you to buy from me I turn around. I, I advise you to, to buy from me gold refined in fire. Why? That you may be rich. And why? That you might have white garments. That you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you can see. Take the eye salve of the Holy Spirit. Apply it to yourself that you might be able to see spiritual things. You're dependent upon that purging or that uh, eye salve that you have there in your city to heal the physical. But what about the spiritual? The problem with counsel, and this is what I found through the years as a pastor, is that you can counsel somebody but they don't always listen. They don't want to hear the counsel from you. 
They want to hear counsel from man. They don't want to hear the counsel from God. They want to hear the counsel of man. They want man's opinion more than God's opinion. And if I open up my Bible and I begin to counsel from the Word of God, is that all you're going to do is talk to me about the Bible? Give me something more than that. And the fact of the matter is that's all that you need. Jesus' first counsel is buy from me. Look to me. Get what you need from me. And this is the way that I paraphrase this. Buy from me gold refined in fire that you may be truly rich in the things of God. That you won't take pride in material wealth or in your fancy black wool which are your earthly garments, but in the white garments of my righteousness, that spiritually you won't be standing naked. The riches and garments found in me are what will satisfy you, and they will last for eternity. That's what I want. My prayer is that's what we all want. Secondly, Jesus counsels them to anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you can see, that Persian powder. They would mix it with oil. They would apply it on the top of your eyes for healing purposes, had healing properties to it. Jesus says, you pride yourself in anointing people's eyes with this purging powder. But I counsel you that you anoint your eyes with the salve of the Holy Spirit, that you would truly be able to see spiritual things. And then Jesus says this, and I'm so thankful that he does. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, because of that, then be zealous or be hot is another way you could put it and repent. The chastening of the Lord. Have any of you felt it lately? I have. To be chastened of the Lord means that God chases after you because he loves you and he deals with you like a child. Like one of his own children. Because of his love for you, he will chasten you. He'll rebuke you. He'll do it with all patience and long suffering because he knows that there are times that you're just going to fail and fail and fail. And he continues pour out his grace upon you each and every day. Where sin abounded, Paul says, grace did much more abound. Christ then instructs them to be zealous and repent. He instructs this lukewarm church 
that you would once again burn with a zeal and an action for me. That you would wake up out of your self-righteousness and you would return to me. That you would have this burning emotion inside of you that says, I want more of you, God. And our response to that counsel should be, I need to repent. You see, it's the only way to change the course. To repent. To change our heart. To change our mind. To turn the other way. And then our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's like he's standing at the church door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. You see, that's the place that God wants to be with us. Dining, fellowshipping with him. But many times I believe the Lord is standing at that door. Knocking, knocking. No one will open. They don't even hear the knock. But he's knocking. And whether it's repentance leading to salvation or just repentance from being lukewarm, Jesus says, if you will open the door, I'll come in and I'll dine with you. what he wants to do. He's so gracious and merciful and loving towards mankind. We just need to hear his voice. My prayer this morning is that we're hearing his voice. We close this letter like Jesus did in all of the letters in verse 22. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If we have an ear, if we have our spiritual ears on, we heard. We said yes and amen to what the Lord just said. We said, I agree with you. We said, so be it, Lord. Have your way in my heart. Change me. Let me truly repent before you. We don't want to be those Christians that said, the Lord says, I gave you time to repent, but you would not repent. You would not. We come this morning, we have the communion table. And this beautiful Laodicea, and then the communion table. Wow, good timing. Good time to set our hearts right before the Lord. And so I'm going to ask that the ushers, whoever's serving us communion this morning, they'll come up and they'll begin to pass out the bread and the cup.
But before we partake together, this is a time for us to say, God, search me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me, see if there's anything that I need to lay out before you. that we might repent where repentance is needed. And so I'm going to ask, as the worship team leads us in worship, you don't have to come up here, but I'm going to ask that you would stand, and you're standing before the Lord. And why do I ask to stand? Why do I ask anyone to stand? It's not for my benefit. It's really for your benefit. Because, see, quite often we want to do things in the secret. Oh, I don't want anyone to know that I'm repenting. We don't want to lay it out before the Lord. And God says, you know what, you need to lay it out before me. Stand. If the Lord is telling you that you need to repent, you need to change direction, you need to get out of your lukewarmness and be hot again for him. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're not born again, you don't have him in your heart, you know that he's not there, or you question that in your heart, you can receive Jesus Christ right now before you partake of communion. All you need to say is, Lord, would you forgive me and cleanse me and come into my heart and life. I want to follow you. I believe that you died and died for my sin and you rose again from the dead. I put my faith and trust in that. You say that prayer in your heart before the Lord and God will honor you right where you're at. And you'll be saved. And then when you partake of communion, you'll go, wow, this applies the broken body of Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what applies to our life. Every time we partake of the communion table, that fellowship that we have with the Lord. And so let's have the ushers hand out the cup. Let's all hold it and we'll all partake together. Uh, as they're passing that out, Let's pray. Father, we come before you. I lift up everyone that has stood. I'm standing up here right now. We stand before you, Lord. And Lord, you're the one that sees the heart. You see my heart. You see each heart here in this place this morning. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that there would be true repentance. True, a true turning of, of heart and mind. A willingness, Lord, to turn away from the things that continue to draw us away from you. That we might be drawn back to you. Forgive us of our lukewarmness. For being idle and half-hearted. God, would you restore the joy of my salvation. Lord, would you do that work, that fresh work in my heart again, that, that I would be stirred for the things of you, to share my faith, 
to be unashamed of who I am in you. And I would live for you. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that even now, Lord, they would raise that prayer before you. That they would ask you for forgiveness even now. That they would turn, Lord, also in repentance to you. And Lord, that you would forgive and that you would give eternal life to whoever would call upon you, whoever would open the door and let you in. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all worship the Lord together. You can be seated. I saved verse 21 for our communion. Look at your Bibles. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. I've shared with you each week who an overcomer is. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ have become an overcomer. You overcome in Him, not in yourself. You are an overcomer by the sheer fact that you have put your faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by that, you have overcome. And the promise to you and I that truly know the Lord, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. That's a promise. You can count on it. Jesus, that night as he was eating, he took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. Passed it out amongst his disciples. Said, take eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them also. And he said, drink from it. All of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's a promise. It's a promise to each one of us. I will grant to sit with me on my throne. That day is coming. Next week, Revelation chapter 4, the rapture of the church, the heavenly scene, chapter 4 and 5. I'm looking forward to it. We have so much, church, to be living for now and running towards that goal. Jesus Christ is coming back. We partake of this this morning in remembrance of what he has done for us and we'll continue to do that until the day we are in his presence in that kingdom. Amen? Amen. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, 
to bear our sin, to take our sin upon himself so that we might live, that we might have eternal life. And Lord, may the reality of that, Lord, may it spur us on to be hot for you, to live for you, to say no to sin, to rely upon you and not on ourselves. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's partake together.